0: to the 18th of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I serve as the host for these discussions. We are streaming on YouTube live. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel, or you can email me or find me on Twitter at US of Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself if you'd like to be on one of these discussions. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. Tomorrow, we have the director of the Natural Hazards Center, Lori Peak, as guest on COVID calls. Lori is author of Behind the Backlash, Muslim Americans After 9-11, and she's the co-author of Children of Katrina with Alice Fothergill. This is a COVID calls not to be missed. It's hard to describe how crucial Lori's voice is in the disaster research community and beyond, and I really hope you'll join us tomorrow. As of today, there are globally 1,495,051 confirmed Cases of COVID 19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, up from 1,412,103 cases yesterday. 419,075 of those cases are in the United States, up from 386,800 yesterday. There are now a total of 14,262 deaths reported in the United States, up from 12,285 yesterday. A new number that I've been reporting, there are also 22,966 reported survivors of COVID-19 in the United States. One of the ways that I cope with stress and anxiety is through music. I play play guitar uh, badly, but I listen to music enthusiastically. This pandemic has been rough on the community of musicians. Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne died last week Ellis Marcellus Jr. died, John Pizzarelli has died. I just wanted to take a moment here to acknowledge the passing yesterday of singer-songwriter John Prine. I grew up in Texas at a time when the singer-songwriter was, at least among my friends, a sort of creative giant. Someone who put the lyrics out front, sparse instrumentation, and told stories. Among them, John Prine was the best. He had a special talent of telling stories from perspectives of men and women, old and young inhabited their realities somehow, rendered their hopes and their pains. To be honest, there have been a lot of times when Prine's lyrics have really helped me out, helped me see things I'd missed, even in the past few weeks. There are really only a few perfect songs out there, and I think Prine's Angel from Montgomery is one of them. As my friend Russ Farr said to me last night, Prine had an antenna to the universe. Thank you, John Prine. Let me introduce my first guest today, Samantha Montano. She's making her second stop by the COVID calls. I talked to her last on March 20th, and on that day we had reached a total of 216 deaths in the United States. Samantha is currently a visiting assistant professor in the Emergency Management and Disaster Science Program at the University of Nebraska Omaha. She specializes in nonprofit and volunteer involvement in disasters and does public engagement work related to the relationship between emergency management and climate change. Her forthcoming book about disasters and climate change that I cannot wait to read will be published by Park Row Books in the summer of 2021. Welcome, Samantha, and thanks again for joining me on COVID Calls.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: So I'd like to remind everyone to please ask questions in the YouTube live chat, or you can email them to me or tweet them throughout the conversation today that seems to be uh, becoming a pretty popular way to do it, just tag me at US of Disaster. So um, Samantha, thank you so much uh, for coming back and uh, being what's now a recurring guest uh, to talk about emergency management in the United States. I think it's fair to say that there's um, no national strategy for managing the coronavirus response, or there hasn't been. And as you've said, um, there, We've never really seen anything like this—a 50-state, you know, and seven-territorial response simultaneously. But it has seemed to be all reaction. And Screma, uh, FEMA, FEMA—it's made that up. Screama, boy, Better slow down. Uh, FEMA is scrambling now to make up for lost time. Um, how are they doing? And you know, we're in the response phase now. But do they have a plan for recovery?
1: Yeah, well, like you said, there really just does not to appear to be a national strategy for managing uh, this response, which I think from an emergency management perspective is really deeply shocking. Um, you know, there were the latest reports say there were warnings uh, to the White House since November about the possibility of uh, of this situation unfolding in the U.S. Um, and, you know, there were existing plans out there that could have been used um, and kind of built off uh, when those became inadequate. And instead, again, from the outside, but instead it appears that nearly this entire response is being improvised. And of course, we know that in any disaster, there's some need for improvisation, but to see it to this extent, I think it is pretty remarkable. Um, You know, Kind of, one of the main things that we know to do in emergency management is continuously plan as we go through a response mm-hmm. um, because we know that is one of the factors that leads to a more effective response um, and obviously you have to update those plans as you're getting new information coming in uh, and you need to figure out what steps you need to take and what the goals are and I mean we just really are not seeing this especially at that national level Um, And I think it's alarming, too, as we're hearing them talk about this need for this whole of government response uh, to not necessarily see that there's a lot of direction being given on what that is supposed to look like, what the primary goals are. Um, And I think the emergency managers that I've talked to, especially that are working kind of in between FEMA, state level, local levels, right, Um, kind of working across multiple levels of, of government are... Uh, a little bit kind of off kilter here and trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And, um, you know, just to see two, three, four months into this response that there, there isn't this cohesive, comprehensive plan, um, it, it's really concerning. And I, I think on one level, it sounds almost too simplistic. Uh, but I think that a lot of the other problems that we're seeing in the response are kind of stemming back to um, us, you know, or emergency managers and other people involved kind of trying to guess what the federal government is thinking here um, and trying to kind of translate that to a local level. Um, so... Uh, this was something actually uh, Elizabeth Warren did an interview with Ezra Klein a couple of days ago. She brought this issue up. You know, she loves plans. Um, so she brought up how this absent uh, absence of a plan is a real problem. And then she also started to connect this Uh, to the recovery as well. So something important to point out here is that we are still just very much in the response. Mm -hmm. Uh, We still will be for many more months. um, And then we will have a recovery that comes next. uh, And that is going to take years to get through. Uh, And there has been nearly no mention of that recovery, no no public attempt, at least again, to really plan for what that looks like.
0: I wonder, um, you mentioned improvisation being essential, of course, to good emergency management. And I think here, of Tricia Wachtendorf's work on that. I'm going to have Tricia on one of the calls a little bit later um, next month, I hope. But, you know, what's the right balance? I mean, how much of it should be working the plan? You know, plan the work, work the plan, and then let improvisation happen as it needs to. They obviously can't anticipate Everything, but like you, I've been really struck. It seems like they're literally uh, improvising nearly all of it. Uh, Does that ring true to you? What's the right balance of improvisation versus plan?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that you start with what the plan is. And then as that plan doesn't work, you switch and you improvise as needed. And, you know, that's obviously going to look a lot different at all levels of the response across agencies, across organizations, a change over time. Um, I don't think there's like an exact percentage of improvisation that we want to see. But, um, you know, it's something that just continually evolves. But still, again, even when that improvisation happens, uh, there's still a kind of a, an element of working towards a common goal. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I don't necessarily always know what that goal is right. here. Um, I think many of us have the goal of minimizing as many deaths as possible. I think some people have a goal of getting the economy back up and running again, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I, I think there's some conflicting conflicting messages going on here.
0: That's something I want us to put a pin in because actually I think the the, um, the whiplash back and forth from the White House about whether or not the goal is to minimize economic hardship and get the economy going or if it's to minimize human uh, fatalities and uh, you know to bring down suffering, there has not been a consistent message. And I think that um, that's actually really crucial when we sort of look you know, down into how FEMA is trying to actually, you know, operationalize what's a mixed message coming from the White House. As you say, I think at this point, and I agree with you, I like the way you put it. If you, we all know people in FEMA who are working extremely hard, people at the state and local levels who are working extremely hard. um, But it doesn't seem to me it's been very clear what the data points of success would be that we could say, wow, this is really working well in this state or that state or this part of FEMA's mission is playing out the way we would expect or not this part. I want to connect you with that. I wanted to ask you about communication, because obviously that's an essential aspect of all of this. You want to see federalism in action. Look at a disaster response. So how's it working?
1: Well, again, from the outside, looking in, not very well. Um, I, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Communication is obviously always a huge issue for us in emergency management. And the bigger the disaster, the more difficult that communication becomes. Um, and then of course, when you add this layer of not really having a clear idea of what the plan is, then that just complicates any communication efforts. Um, and, and so I think between all of the levels of government, again, across different agencies that are involved, um, this is, <laughs> it is very hard to com- to communicate vertically and horizontally across government, right? Uh, and to do that in the midst of a crisis is doubly hard. To do that without any kind of overarching structure or plan becomes even more difficult. Um, and I would also add in here too that it's not just in terms of government, but there's also this issue of communication between government and the public, um, particularly again at that federal level, although some for some at state level as well. You know this constant back and forth, not answering questions, changing our minds about things. All of this really breeds this uncertainty. And again, just with improvisation, there's always going to be some element of uncertainty in a response, of course. Um, but, <laughs> but. Uh, you know you've you've got to address that uncertainty as you go and you need to minimize that uncertainty as as much as you can and i think when the federal government is trying and really the white house is trying to communicate with the public here The public has a vital role in this response. We we need people to take actions. We need them to stay home. We need them to follow instructions. And when there's mixed messages and uncertainty coming from government, that makes it really difficult for the public to know what they need to do. It makes it really difficult for organizations for businesses to make informed decisions about how they fit into this response, um, about what kind of you know, it prevents us from making informed decisions about what our own personal futures look like. Am I getting a paycheck next month? Like, I don't know. It depends if we're real, like, right. There's all of these Mm -hmm. questions that need to be answered. And, you know, in (laughs) normal times, perhaps government Mm -hmm. would be um, the agent for for disseminating that information.
0: So part of reaching that certainty is the, the, the disaster declaration process and the funds that that enables some uh, viewers may not be too familiar with the way that system works so i'm gonna ask you to give us your uh, elevator explanation of how uh, disaster declaration process works and then also how it's working right now as you see it
1: sure yeah i think i went through this in more detail last time i was on so you can go back and listen to that um, within fema here in the stafford act uh, there's the Uh, emergency declarations, which were made on, I believe, March 13th. That went out for every state and territory in the United States, uh, opening up some federal funding. Uh, In the time since, we have seen each state, each governor, uh, put in a request for a major disaster declaration through the Stafford Act. This uh, comes with more money and more types of programs as opposed to that emergency declaration. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the, The way you go about doing this process is each governor needs to request a disaster declaration, so it's taken several weeks. Um, I just counted it up and there's 52 declarations that have been issued. So there's still a few states or territories that haven't gone yet. Um, I saw Idaho requested today. I don't know who's lagging behind here, but eventually they all should Have that disaster declaration. Um, States have, for the most part, been requesting uh, public assistance funding to help pay back uh, some of their expenses related to, uh, you know, emergency measures that they're putting into place in their communities. Um, And then they have also been requesting individual assistance um, most states have requested all individual assistance programs through FEMA. They only seem to be getting approved for crisis counseling funding, which is important. But um, does leave out a number of other programs uh, that seemingly would be useful uh, to folks right now. Um, what- One example would be uh, disaster unemployment assistance. Uh, There's also a program uh, related to helping folks with funeral expenses. Um, And so there's these other programs that haven't uh, been addressed yet. Uh, I don't fully know what the holdup is there or, you know, what the situation behind the scenes is. Um, But yeah, so that's kind of where we are with those declarations.
0: I have a question in here actually just came in. um, And this is a a little bit of an insider question, but I think maybe you can translate it for our audience. And and the question is about um, how well you think the NIMS, the National Incident uh, Management System, and ICS, the Incident Command System, are holding up, or how do you think that structure is serving us in this moment? And this this question is coming from a person who believes that those have actually been a saving grace in this particular in this particular moment. People may not know exactly what those systems are. They're sort of post nine eleven systems. Maybe you can explain.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so the easiest way to think of uh, NIMS and ICS they're they're the systems that we use to try to designate roles and responsibilities across various stakeholders that are involved in response and try to kind of organize um, the, the structure of a response, right? It kind of creates mm-hmm. a, an overarching system uh, so that we can have um, kind of clear communication across various agencies across communities. Um, like you said, a kind of a vestige here from 9-11. Um, and Yes, so I mean, this is being used certainly by emergency management agencies uh, across the country. I I guess where my uh, critique with that is, um, I don't know the extent to which it's being used kind of outside of emergency management Mm -hmm. right now. um, I'm not getting the impression, again, I could be wrong here, I'm not getting the impression that it is being used as widely as maybe we would like it to be used for it to be as successful uh, in actually coordinating that response Um, and, Again, I think within local emergency management agencies, yes i, I think that's holding up up well, um, but as we kind of bring in other agencies i'm I'm not as confident in that
0: so there was a what I thought a pretty distressing story in the hill yesterday about the um one of these coronavirus task forces in uh dhs one that was really working with fema and somebody um in the task for there was an exposure and the task force basically that had been meeting at fema hq had to disband um now i mean that to me raises two questions why were they meeting in person in the first place uh, but also what does it mean and i think you know this is something. You know very well about how emergency operations centers work. I know that they have thought about what it's what would mean to have somebody or a pandemic sort of sweep through the EOC, but I'm distressed about this. I mean, I'm just worried that you know, these people that we ask to sort of put aside, you know, normal well, there's no normal, but what would best sense right now about keeping um, safe and not getting sick that they're just going to put those things aside because it's just the culture of what FEMA is and how they operate this sort of almost in some ways kind of quasi-military you know culture that you get the mission done first and you take care of yourself second I'm not sure that's going to work in this case
1: yeah I maybe this is why I'm a
0: college professor and not a FEMA working at FEMA HQ but I don't know I mean what do you think about that
1: Yeah, you know, this is something I've been concerned about since the beginning here. Um, You know, the importance of emergency management folks, not just at FEMA, but at all levels, protecting themselves and staying healthy, not only for their own benefit, of course, but also because we do not have the capacity right now for an entire emergency management agency to get sick, right? Um, There's already been a few cases across the country at a more local level. Colorado State Agency had a case, you know, that this is kind of playing with fire here. And, um, you know, I know FEMA sent home an initial wave of people going back a couple of weeks i'm not sure when i've lost all sense of time but um they sent home like an initial wave of people to try and work from home um i know that there are a number of emergency management agencies across the country who have tried to limit the number of people actually physically in the eoc for sure but there i mean there's major tech issues uh going on and of course i mean all of us right now are working from home it's not easier said than done um anybody in female working from home is you know dealing with those same issues um and you know it it, it's concerning too especially when you think about the overarching staffing related issues that are perpetual to FEMA at this point, really, you know, keeping the agency fully staffed and, and being able to expand the agency quickly when a disaster strikes has, uh, has been a, a challenge for the agency since its, uh, since its founding. Um, And of course, after 2017, we have the GAO reports that show FEMA was understaffed going into Hurricane Maria. So all these issues in terms of staffing are are really kind of colliding in on on itself. Um, And again, from the outside looking in, it is hard to know kind of the extent of this problem. Mm
0: -hmm. So I want to ask you one more question. And and this is um, a bit more just sort of thinking ahead a little bit here. Uh, One of the things I've been, I shouldn't be surprised by anything, but one of the things that actually still has surprised me in the last few years is the degree to which the debates in Congress over funding the Disaster Relief Fund, Um, and so making sure FEMA has a big enough budget, particularly as we go in the summer into the fall, or special appropriations, how those have become now sort of reliably partisan, whereas in the past they really weren't. I mean, there was always plenty of political grandstanding around cutting checks for disaster victims. But in the last few years, it has become an arena for partisan battles. And I just wanna, I, this is a discussion we can pick up in greater detail later, but I'm concerned um, that this could be framed as we go through the summer and into the fall as an urban versus rural issue, as a, you know, if we look at where the population centers are and where the highest number of cases are now, and I know we're concerned about it going everywhere and into rural areas, but, it, but if it continues to play out the way it is mostly now, I, I'm just worried that this whole, the FEMA response gets sucked up into the partisanship machine that we have in America right now, and we will not have the kind of resources that we need, and it'll just become one more case for a governor of Texas who has said today, he said, oh, we've reached the peak in Texas. He's already said they've flattened the curve in Texas governor of Texas governor of Florida to make these kind of claims that this is an east coast thing um and that um you know to to score political points i i don't know do you are you worried about that is that is that something you're concerned about as we as we see the funds being expended and depleted ultimately as we go into the fall
1: yes absolutely um yeah I i mean to your point every time there's a battle in congress over disaster relief funding, I mean, you're... you're cutting the emergent you're cutting the national emergency management system off at its knees if you are not funding it states do not have the resources to make up for what the federal government can provide and i know that there's the an ideological push for states to take over but the very definition of a crisis is that a community is overwhelmed and needs outside help and so when a local community is overwhelmed they go to the state when the state is overwhelmed it goes to the federal government and if the federal government has to be there. Um, and so, yeah, of course, any any threat of not funding what we need related to relief, and of course, mitigation and preparedness as well, is a is huge concern.
0: Samantha Montano, uh, thank you for your analytical power when it comes to emergency management and disaster in America. And I hope this is a, I don't know, hope is in the right way. I hope it's a standing feature. I hope we don't have to keep doing these much longer, but as we do them, I would like to have you back. So I hope we can can get you back on COVID calls. Thanks again. Absolutely. Okay. We're gonna turn now to the second guest for today, Dr. Robert J. Kane is professor and head Department of Criminology and Justice Studies at Drexel University. His primary areas of research are police authority and accountability urban ecology and neighborhood crime and health, and trying to understand how police can best fit into vulnerable urban communities. He's co-author of Jammed Up, Bad Cops, Police Misconduct, and the New York City Police Department, out with NYU Press, and he's the co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of Police and Policing. His current book project is titled Policing Beyond Coercion, The New Idea for a 21st Century Role. Rob, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls.
2: Happy to be here, Scott, thanks.
0: So I wanna ask you, um, how, as we think about how crime patterns are shifting right now in America and maybe worldwide, we'll talk about sort of both perspectives today, um, but as crime patterns are shifting from outdoor to indoor settings, um, what, are the, what do those shifts look like? What are the implications of those shifts? How is crime changing right now in the middle of the pandemic?
2: well it 's interesting because we actually it because of the pandemic, a lot of uh, the data collection efforts have stalled a bit so uh, from a you know an open data perspective when we when we try to go on to open Philly or New York or San Francisco, a lot of these cities um, haven 't updated uh, recently, probably since mid march in some cases um, because of the staffing but from people I talk to and and just from you know what I know of uh, from the media, it does appear that uh, outdoor crime, or you know, crime that we typically associate with sort of public locations, is probably decreasing. Uh, the implications are that crime, crimes within households, may be increasing, and that's that is troubling. Uh, family violence cycles um, injure and unfortunately kill um, a number of people. Um, you know, for women in that, you know, the age group from up to 19 years old, homicide is the fourth leading cause of death. For 20 to 44 year old women, homicide is the fifth leading cause of death. And so, and that's really from domestic violence situations. So there is, you know, you've probably heard the reports over the last week or so that police departments are increasingly being called out for domestic violence events and you know domestic violence is kind of an old term i think we like to use the term family violence now because it's not just uh, violence against women but even if it is violence against women it affects everybody in the house obviously so these are the things police departments have to grapple with while at the same time there are these events out out in the public, in Philadelphia in particular, for example, uh, where, you know, these roaming groups of teenagers are engaging in some pretty serious uh, robberies and, uh, you know, wilding incidents. And, you know, so it's not to say that the outdoor crime has, has stopped. When I say by outdoor, I mean like public crime. It's not to say that it's stopped, but there are these shifts going on that, that policing and, and, and really health officials too uh, need to be
0: aware of. Is there a conventional wisdom about the role of police in a, in a pandemic? I mean, is this something that um, I don't know it really very much at all about how police forces are thought to be used during disasters more generally? I mean, they're in the first responder group, so they're sort of like doing just about everything, especially in those first couple of days before other kinds of assistance can arrive if it needs to. But a pandemic seems to be so unique in so many ways. What's the, what's the role for police in this moment?
2: Well, it's, it's actually very interesting, because um, it seems to me as a scholar of the police that their role can be gigantic. Um, you know, clearly in society, the police have an enforcement obligation. So in a pandemic, you know, uh, right now, for example, with, you know, I think it's at least 37 states at this point point have and the district have uh, stay-at-home orders. So the police are authorized to enforce those orders through citations, uh, through uh, civil fines, criminal fines, even arrest. Probably the more forward-thinking police departments are using using this time and and, and engaging with the public who are outdoors to try to educate them and, and uh, sort of you know, instilling in the importance of of the social distancing and the stay-at-home, the importance of the stay-at-home orders. So the police really, because of their, the thing that's interesting about the police is they are everywhere, at least they'll have you believe that, but they are, they are largely everywhere in the way they deploy. They are out and about among the public for non-emergent situations all the time, 24-7, right? So uh, what that means is they are in neighborhoods even when there aren't exigent circumstances occurring. So they, they, they contact the public in probably some of the most routine ways um, that don't necessarily involve emergencies far more than the fire department and, and certainly far more than social workers and um, you know, emergency department teams. So the police have a, have a big role. They are enforcing these stay-at-home orders. Some some um, uh, police departments are actually using drones uh, to to fly over larger crowds and, and essentially, you know, use a, a bullhorn to tell people to uh, go home. And so they're getting creative about this. But it seems to me also that the police have a more public health or community health oriented role as well, that I'm not sure we as a uh, society are properly um, uh, relying on or, or sort you know. So the police are great. They, they would be great case finders, for example, because mm. they are dealing with the public in situations that are not, again, not always emergent. Um, they, can, um, they can try to help identify who might be infected, you know, um, Are they carrying around these infrared thermometers, for example? Do they have the ability to take temperature? We're not asking them to practice medicine, so it's not like that. But they are well-trained first responders, and they they have this ability to identify potentially sick people along their daily rounds. They can also engage in um, contact tracing in ways that other agencies might not be able to to do so. So, so I mean, the the, poli- the the role of the police probably runs the gamut theoretically. I think in practice, we as a society and probably departments themselves still see themselves mostly as an enforcement agency. But I think that's a very limited view of the world.
0: I that is so interesting to me. And of course, it's I guess it's a moving target too around trust, and uh, you know this the role of the police in communities across America is as variable as the communities across America, um, yeah. certainly. Um, you know, I have a limited knowledge of sort of community policing. Uh, I know that, the, you know, the, this idea that, the, as you described it, the police should be seen as trusted members in the community, not just there when there's, uh, when there's crime. And yet at the same time, we have the other, um, you know, the recent the police shootings and the things that have sparked so much violence in America and in recent years. Um, in, in a time of crisis like this right now, does that make those tensions worse somehow or does it ameliorate those, those impacts somehow?
2: Well, I think it depends. Um, uh, we know my research and the research of, of good colleagues of mine at other institutions, Uh, That work, there's a big body of evidence that pretty clearly shows that um, a little enforcement goes a long way, you know, enforcement is another word for coercion. And and the the takeaway from here is that, you know, the police arrive and they use coercive authority to get the job done. And and it's an interesting thing because it's kind of a paradox, actually, in in policing, I think, anyway. Um, You know, the police role is that the, the police themselves are defined on the basis of the general right to use coercive force. However, not every encounter between the police and the public has to has to be based on coercion or coercive force. Mm. This is the tricky part because the police, that they come into a neighborhood or they come into an event, and they're all you know they're in threat mode most of the time because they're they're wondering what they're walking into, and that's completely reasonable and and professionally responsible actually many cases but but at the same time we do have to remember that again a little coercion goes a long way and in some communities uh too much coercion can be disastrous for the police and and so when i mentioned the research um a minute ago Mm. i'm talking about work that has shown that when the police overly police communities when they when they engage in more drug enforcement than you know than would be normal let's say whatever that normal is there are ways to sort of measure that. But uh, when they engage in sort of highly aggressive arrest strategies, violent crime tends to go up over time. And the reason is because folks are, they don't talk to the police anymore. They don't trust them. They don't see the police as a legitimate um, public service institution. And so as a result, the police often get cut out of a lot of information that they would otherwise um, get. And I think that we could say the same thing for um, policing a pandemic. Um, we know you mentioned Samantha and you were talking earlier about you know the the political you know sort of divisions maybe that we start to see with with disaster f- relief funding mm-hmm. and a lot of that is driven by this urban versus non urban kind of right. you know what we think of as where the where the disease is is uh, is occurring most and yes of course it, it is a more urban phenomenon but but that's because of the urban conditions right and so the thing is even within those urban settings there are certain neighborhoods that are much more vulnerable than others and it's in those neighborhoods where the police really need to be careful about how they are enforcing and not you know trying to educate or be or sort of view this their their role from a public health or community health standpoint that's where some of the backlash is most likely to occur
0: This is, I mean, super complicated, because um, even though the pandemic in the United States started out in a way that actually was a little surprising to people who study disasters, that is to say, if you look at the sort of socioeconomic level mm-hmm. of those who are being impacted, it was high. Right. People are traveling. People who travel. Conferences, business conferences, or they were, yeah. they were at Vail or where, wherever they were, and they were in <laughs> places where they were these sort of hotspots that broke out. Um, but what we've now seen I think pretty clearly is a reversion to the mean in the way disasters really work in America is that they exacerbate processes that are already underway of poverty and vulnerability and, and race. And so you're gonna see overrepresentation of pandemic victims in communities that already have uh, longstanding vulnerabilities. Now let's map that onto what you're talking about with policing, because those are, you know, in a disaster response, we talk about it in the way Sam was talking about it, you know, there's sort of the plan, which is we have to deal with the disaster across the country in every community. But the reality everybody knows is that it's the most vulnerable that are gonna need the greatest care in these moments. Those are also the populations that tend to have the least amount of trust in authority or the furthest distance from political power. They have limited means, they have limited sources of information. I mean, I don't know how you begin to think about that in terms of of your own work about you know policing in vulnerable communities. But can you say a little more about that? Because um, that's where you were you were going with this. I mean, this seems like a double double whammy for police who really already struggle to find trust in those communities, and now it's it's multiplied because of the emergency.
2: Yeah, well, that's that's exactly right. And uh, and by the way, these are also the same communities that distrust. Um, healthcare professionals more than anybody else as well so they're not always um, quick to get primary care you know for a variety of reasons i mean these are these are rough communities and, and let's you know um i i know as a researcher i'm supposed to take the middle ground on on some of this stuff but as a person who has read a lot and done a lot of work i can say it's tough to take the middle ground um when talking about the most vulnerable communities because um they haven't been treated great historically by Um, by our government um, entities. And so I I think it's crucial uh, for, I think it's really important for the police to be um, out there, sorry. (laughs) Um, It's important for the police, of course, to be out there. Uh, And it is important, I think, for the police to do their best to enforce social distancing efforts, stay at home orders where, you know. um, But there's also kind of a situational crime prevention approach that police departments can take. Hmm. And, and that is eliminating or reducing as much as possible um, opportunities for folks to congregate in public areas. And And okay. it sounds, you know, it sounds, it sounds kind of rude to be honest with you, but we're talking about, you know, going into playgrounds and taking down basketball hoops and putting some barriers in front of parking lots or closing skateboard parks and making it so, you know, that's, These are things we can do or police departments can do that are not enforcement oriented. They're just trying to close down these opportunities to, you know, to to meet in public. And um, again, I guess the, the, the takeaway is that arresting people and taking them to jail and putting them then side by side with other folks. I mean, the police also, they not only have a responsibility to enforce, you know, some of these orders, but they also have a responsibility not to... Uh, exacerbate what is already a pretty big disaster. I was in Paris, just as a quick, quick, quick story. I was in Paris a couple weeks ago uh, when uh, Macron, you know, kind of dropped the hammer and and told Mm the Parisians "You, you have to, you can't come outside anymore. Long story behind that, but if you did go outside, you um, you know you had to carry some papers around and, and indicate why you why you were out there. So my wife and I were walking along the street, and you know people were social distancing. We were keeping away from from each other. We were getting exercise. You was know, some fresh air outside. The only time people stood shoulder to shoulder it wasn't you know, shoulder to shoulder. The only time that happened was when the police met us on street corners and had us all come together to look at our papers yeah. and they weren't social distancing from us. They weren't keeping others apart. They were taking our phones, looking at them, handing them back. There was, there weren't wiping anything down. This was a little bit on the front end. Of, so of, 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 you know, this was the f- first few days of, of, right. the, of the shutdown of the lockdowns, but nevertheless, you know, Samantha was on and you were talking about, you know, about the plans should we have, you know, what kind of planning should we be doing before all this stuff? And, and the thing is, it seems pretty clear to me that a disaster like this tends to expose the gaps in it, our our infrastructure of preparedness. And to me, that was one of the most obvious problems. And And so... It's tricky for police because do you really want to have police stopping people on corners, pulling them close to you and close to each other to issue citations? It seems to me that that could actually increase the community spread of COVID. So yeah, I can take a breath and and, and wait and listen to another question, but it's it's
0: tough. I think that that conundrum that the way you put it too is that um, in cases where, in vulnerable communities where the police have where well, there's long-standing tension um, and multiple different attempts to build bridges. Sometimes it works and, and sometimes it doesn't. And now you layer on a new responsibility. Um, I'm really, I'm thinking a lot about what you said about sort of finding ways just to avoid the confrontation and they're pretty low tech the way you described it, you know, they lock, are the, low lock the tech. playground, yeah. take down yeah. the hoop. Uh, you described that as rude, but I think your average public health official would say that's kindness um and and in this moment you know um and so that's um that you mentioned the another possibility here um and that's the use of sort of non-human means to try to accomplish these ends like the drones now i remember watching some video making the rounds it seems like 10 years ago now it was just three months in which the police in wuhan were basically you know Going by street corners and telling people, um, you know, please uh, put your mask on and please go home. Um, and that seemed like so much of a of a you know um, science fiction fantasy to me. But now I'm seeing, I saw it yesterday that it's being employed in New York City, I believe.
2: Yeah, it's being employed actually multiple places from coast to coast. I mean, is it I've working? It used, yeah, I've seen it used mostly in um, uh, San Diego County. California. And, um, you know, it's one of the ways to get people off beaches, for example, or at least get them to, to stand next to each other. It's, it's a, again, it's a tricky thing because once you start using drones, for example, and then we start to hear of photographs or video being taken from the drones, then we have to ask ourselves, okay, so are we now being run through facial recognition cameras, which are, you know, growing and growing in terms of their prevalence around the country, around the world, really. Um, so how, you know, the public health system is one thing Uh the healthcare system inside hospitals is another entity. The police, um, that's another thing altogether because yes, they, they, we do have, they do have an enforcement function for sure. Um, but how good do we want them to be at enforcing these kinds of, of, of issues? Because I mean, they're don't think that, that they're not going to stop once this, whatever this is this disaster sort of evaporates okay i mean if they're using drones and facial recognition now trust me they're going to be using this after and so we have to ask ourselves as a society how much of that do we want to to go on i mean that's a philosophical question that for me that i ponder pretty regularly we have a really good police system in the united states Uh, partly because it's so decentralized and partly because it's it we're so training oriented here far more than in many other countries Um, but how good do we want our police to be i mean that's for me that's that's always that's always been the question i think that in some ways it's it's um it's everybody's useful if not more useful to 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 think of them as during times like like this disaster, but um, thinking of the police more as part of the U.S. public health service,
0: yeah,
2: and and again engaging in some maybe some case finding, some uh, contact tracing, some education, you know, in in communities, and and trying to rely as little on enforcement as possible. Although sometimes, look, I was in Philadelphia the other day, just. Um, and uh in the center of the city getting exercise and uh, the skateboard park was open over near the museum and i I was first i was was afraid to go down there to be perfectly honest with you because i don't want to get this thing and and at the same time i was appalled and the first question what do you think the first question i asked was to my i was walking with my wife where are the cops
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and nowhere yeah
2: (laughs) yeah Yeah. well that's the other that's the other issue too is that you know police forces themselves. you know, they have to protect themselves uh, yeah. from this as well. There are massive ch- uh, changes in organizational structure that police departments have been um, taking in order to, to ensure yeah. that, that their staffing levels remain.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So so um, I was reading in the Wall Street Journal this morning that um, one in five New York City police are out sick right now.
2: Okay, yeah, uh, I mean...
0: Yeah. And I'm not sure exactly what that number refers to. I mean, the police, it's not the entire police force, but certain maybe um, beat cops. I'm not quite sure. But, the, but that's a staggering, however you look at it, that's a, that's a big number. And I guess I want to see, see if you can talk a little bit about how management, we've talked about police in the community, but what about in, inside headquarters? Like, how is management changing right now? What kind of strategies do they have so that you don't actually have a real reduction? In force in a moment like this.
2: Yeah, I mean, in some ways it depends on the agency itself and how, you know, how large it is and how whether it's a metropolitan agency or or maybe a, a somewhat smaller place. But in the larger kind of more metropolitan places, where about 84% of our population lives, anyway, um, in, in in those police departments, I think the first thing that that police departments probably police departments probably do three things very quickly. One is uh, they initiate contact with the other agencies to start getting memorandums of understanding and, and, and making sure that they're all on the same page. Um, you know, people who are walking around, we don't always, you know, respect the political boundaries, so I may be walking into another police jurisdiction. And so police agencies regionally begin to coordinate for sure. Um, the other thing you do as a, as a, as a police um, chief police, or commissioner, depending on where you are, is a, a, one of the strategies that a lot of them will use is to split the uh, squads in half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then have, so if you have a squad of, of uh, a work group of 10 officers, depending on the kind, if it's a patrol group, 10 to 20 officers, let's say, if you're going to run double cars, you know, two officers per car. Um, first thing is they'll take, you know, usually they'll reduce those down to one officer uh, per car patrols to try to, they wanna keep the social distance distancing among squad members as um, up as much as possible. So they'll, they'll they, they split the cars. The other thing is, is that they'll split the, the squads in half so that, uh, and then place the squads on 14 day work rotations so that half the squad works for 14 days straight while the other squad stays home and doesn't go anywhere. And uh, so that's kind of a quarantine period for, for them. And, and then if you're, if you're an agency with um, you know, f- a fair number of, if you have uh, surplus personnel, if you have auxiliary police officers, for example, um, then you'll keep, you'll keep a number of officers kind of like in a bullpen, so to speak, mm. where they're not working, but they're also just staying home. And so over that 14 day period, when half that squad is off, if anybody develops symptoms, that you can plug in auxiliary or, or, or other officers who haven't been out and about so that they will then begin the rotation. So this is why, one of the reasons why it's so important to, to um, uh, initiate and maintain communication across police agencies so that you can sometimes borrow from neighboring agencies if necessary. And then, of course, the other pieces of this are how do they contact the public Um, during these events. And for them, for police officers, you know, a a lot of it is about social distancing, believe it or not. I mean, they deal with people under, of course, a variety of circumstances. Uh, It's it's hard to socially distance if you're, you know, on the ground handcuffing somebody. But um, at the same time, most of what they do is not related to law enforcement per se. Most of what they do is service, you know, providing service or information or responding to disturbance calls. And that's not always an enforcement issue. Um, So, you know, they're going to, the the police need personal protective equipment, just like everybody else does. And um, what's interesting about it is, uh, from the numbers I've seen, uh, just as of yesterday, um, almost half of all police agencies that report are reporting that their officers don't have enough uh, PPE. So they are in the same situation that a lot of uh nurses are and and physicians in hospitals you know and, and their, their big need for police departments right now the two big needs are um uh particulate respirators and uh disposable gowns and they just they just they're not many of them almost half don't have them so it's tricky for them they're getting infected a lot i think the you know um about so of the eighty five thousand police officers on whom we have current data uh, about 7.2 percent of them have been exposed to COVID-19, um, somewhat less, it's kind of fuzzy, it's a little clear, around 3% have been diagnosed, and there are um, a few thousand officers who are out with, um, with COVID-19. Most of those are in New York City, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, right. you know, it, it's looking like 50, about 5,500 police officers have been exposed to it in New York City, and that's an agency of roughly 40,000, at least when I was doing my work there, it was around 40,000.
0: Let me turn to a question here that um, came in in the chat, and it's something I wanted to ask you about as well, related to, um, this is not your area of particular expertise, but I'm gonna ask you anyway. Related to um, cyber it's never crime- never stopped me from talking. Well, I, hey, you know, this, <laughs> I'm sure you can, you can give us some light on it around cyber crime and scams. This particular question was about WhatsApp scams that have happened um, in East Asia. Um, but do we see in a moment like this, you were talking about crime going indoors from outdoors, but there's also crime that comes indoors from a distance digitally. Um, have you got your mind on this? Are we seeing an uptick in the, in, in digital scamming online? Yeah, I mean,
2: so the answer is of course, yes. I mean, that, 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 um, it's hard to know by the way, again, because the data it's, we know it's interesting because in these moments, it seems to me that that good investigative reporting is um, represents probably the, the most uh, the quickest source of data we have. The data will the actual data will follow once we can you know take an accounting of, of what's going on. But to your point, um, and to the point of the person who who asked the question, yeah, I mean I think that what you're seeing we may not be seeing an an uptick, so to speak. Um, in cyber crime or electronic crime or fraud so much as a shift in, in these activities. I mean, these are, you know, think about this as a snake oil salesman in the frontier in Texas in you know, 1847. I mean, they come into town, they want to, uh, this is a new town. They want to sell something that, that is some kind of nasty tasting stuff that, that, you know, keeps smallpox uh, from development. Mm-hmm. Same thing. And, and with these, these kinds of things, you can buy apparently these, respirators that you know stop anything and will keep your family safe you can buy supplements now online that supposedly will uh, uh keep you from will prevent you from getting COVID 19. so i mean definitely yes and i mean this is a time to be vigilant online you know there's a lot of clickbait out there as well that's trying to you know people are trying to get you to open um their their links so that they can start installing uh malware on your machine and and so so the answer is probably yes, that that you were seeing a, a shift to this kind of stuff. It's the next big thing.
0: But do law enforcement agencies have the bandwidth to take on something like this in, in this moment?
2: I mean, it's, it's that's that's really hard to say because you can imagine that if they're splitting patrol squads in half, yeah. I imagine in a lot of police departments, anybody who can wear a uniform is wearing a uniform at this point for a lot of them. Um, so you know, even you talk about rationed care in the healthcare system, there's some, there may be some rationed care in the policing system as well. So the police, have, you know, New York City probably has, the, the New York City and the Los Angeles Police Department probably have uh, the most sophisticated cybercrime units in the world, if not among in the country, right? I mean, it's up there with the FBI and Israeli mm-hmm. National Police, et cetera. Um, I imagine that even they are are being taxed, and and that some of their officers are are wearing uniforms at the moment.
0: This seems to be a perennial the issue, even the the case you made up about snake oil. I mean, I was reading Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year, describing 1665 in London. He has a whole chapter talking about all of the different tonics and elixirs and scams that were being rolled out and it was the way he described it was there was no way to stop it or police it all you could do was catalog it it was just um, uh, it just added on another layer of the of the stress and strain that people had to had to deal with.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's true you catalog it. uh, And, um, but I think the biggest thing we can do is is just just not respond to it. I mean, You know, it's different than a than an in-person crime where there might be somebody confronting you uh, with a weapon or who's big and strong and, and can not overpower you. Um, it, it, you know, with cybercrime, it's really that social engineering that's, that 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 these offenders use. They're they're blasting out to millions of users. And all they need is a few people to, to click on it and, and get credit card information and, you know, that, that, that's profitable to them. So something seems a little too good to be true. If you haven't heard Fauci talk about it, yeah. uh, then maybe don't um, don't try to buy it.
0: I wanted to um, you mentioned uh, sort of the global picture. And in, in your last answer, I just want to get to that, um, this question of how we might be seeing policing differences uh, in different cities around the world, right? right now, I know it's still kind of early days, but are you seeing um, disparities in the way that police departments are, are taking up their actions in the midst of the pandemic? I, I think that,
2: okay, so I think that in the more authoritarian regimes, you're seeing police departments and police officers uh, coming down really hard on people and using mm-hmm. a great deal of violence to you know, enforce social distancing uh, measures.
0: Where have you seen that?
2: Oh boy! Just um, uh, Philippines, you know. I mean, online. And, and so when I when I read news stories myself, Philippines jumps out at me now. But uh, mm. it, it's so. I don't think we've seen that so much um, in um, most Western European countries or or the United States so much. Um, there, I imagine there are. Where I see it, to be perfectly honest with you, if we can reframe this a little bit, where I see it, I think is mostly between. Um, the federal police and the local police. The, my, I, we ha- in the United States, we don't have a nationalized police system. We have a very localized police system, which in some, and it's, you know, federalism, and it's great. Um, it tends to be, it, 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 uh, uh, local police systems tend to be more responsive to local communities. The problem though with that system sometimes is that with so little federal coordination, it's difficult to get a message across entirely to an entire police system. So you're actually, you're probably seeing different policing responses just in the United States based on where people, uh, where people live and the degree to which some folks believe that COVID-19 is a real threat and some folks believe that it's not. You know, and, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I suspect that in other countries where it's, most of the police forces are federalized um, there's probably greater continuity across, and, and may, you may see a, a more coordinated response by those
0: police departments. That's interesting, because it taps into another one of the questions that came in around um, whether or not police at this time should be required, and you mentioned your example from Paris, um, to use PPE. I mean, on the one hand, is is it's available? But on the other hand, should they be compelled to use it, to use the gloves, um, to use the masks, Is that something that um, I mean, it might be, you know, the order of the day that they do it, but is there some way to compel police actually to follow those those guidelines?
2: Well, if you if you talk to police commanders, they say, well, all I have to do is issue an order and they will do it. So, you know, just tell us what you want and they'll do it. Yeah. I, I'm a, so you know I know that PPE is is uh, scarce. Personal protective equipment is scarce at the moment, and you certainly need to. Uh, I think we need to uh, kind of ration it in ways that make the most sense, and and that would be of course for healthcare workers, nurses, and physicians, and whoever else in hospitals, and, and then you know uh, EMTs and, and police officers. I actually believe that in a, in a if we were in a resource-rich environment where police had uh, access. To, to a full array of PPE, then yeah, I actually think they, they should be required to wear it. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Well, two reasons, really. One, um, if they're not required to wear it, they probably won't because it is probably a pain. You know, yeah, it's like of a lot, I mean, really, right? Who wants to wear that stuff? So it's probably a pain. Um, and we really don't need any other folks getting sick uh, as much as, you know, so, uh, so there's that issue. And if a police officer gets sick, um, it's very likely that their families are going to get sick as well if they're living with folks. And so, you know, there's that, there is this issue of trying to stop community spread even among our first responders. I think that's one issue. The other issue is that there's, there's not a real way to say this gently, but there is a little bit of a, of a, of a machismo um subculture in policing and not say the entire institutions based on you know macho stuff but there is kind of this i'm a cop i don't need this kind of stuff i'm i'm you know i'm on the street i'm in my work for my, my work group and we can handle everything the thing is there's probably a number of people a number of officers out there who really want to wear personal protective equipment but who might feel like if I ask for that, then I'm gonna be stigmatized. And so I think the way to reduce the stigma overall is to require it, period. Everybody, then everybody can grumble about it, but even people who agree with it, they can grumble about it, but they're happy they're wearing it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really, you know, I think that's part of the research that will have to come later, probably the kind of work you will do too, is, you know, the difference between whatever the orders were and actually how things worked on the ground when, when it came to it. Yeah. Um, I want to ask it, we're up on time, but I want to get one more question in. Cause I've been asking all of my, all of my social scientists. Yes, this is. And that is how is COVID-19 changing the way you do your research?
2: Well, right now my research is stopped <laughs> because okay. of COVID-19. Well, there's one answer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, so, um, really? yeah, so partly it's stopped and, um, so the, the field stuff is, well, obviously, I'm not working on any of that stuff right now, but from a, I am writing, and um, I've written a few blog posts recently kind of about uh, some experiences I had, uh, particularly repatriating to the United States, uh, coming in from France, and the experiences that uh, my wife and I actually had with um, uh, border uh, customs and border protection, uh, which weren't great, by the way, They uh, in, at that time, anyway, there wasn't a real coordinated effort to keep to keep people apart and it's the you know so I think of I think of policing as a social determinant of health some you know whatever they do in your neighborhood um, they can make you healthy healthier they can encourage healthy behaviors they can also encourage unhealthy behaviors and in the book I'm currently writing for example I just just the other morning um, I, I sketched out a chapter for policing a pandemic and and what, what is the, just like what you asked the moment I got on here, what is the role of the police in a pandemic? And, you know, or think of the pandemic. I mean, if you think more broadly about it as a disaster and what is the police role there, there, there is an enforcement role, but, but it's really causing me to, to think beyond that and really Mm -hmm. think of the the health implications of what, what the police do again, mostly because, of their deployment infrastructure. They're out there everywhere. They don't just come with sirens blazing. They're driving around as well. Sometimes it's a pain because you know, you're know you on the beltway and you see a state trooper behind you, and it's not great. But the thing is, they, they are everywhere. and So mm-hmm. it causes me to think about how we can, in times like this, broaden the worldview of the police in ways that say, you're not just an enforcement entity, mm-hmm. you are part of the US Public Health Service.
0: I think that's an amazing insight. And I and I also think that um, on the conservative side, this is gonna be a one year disaster in the United States, but probably much longer and it's gonna unfold. I was thinking today already about the second wave that's invariably gonna come in the fall. It's gonna unfold in various different waves. And so um, some of these hypotheses you're talking about right now, I think probably um, we're not gonna to have to wait for the disaster to end, Um, it's, there's going to be multiple moments within this, in which this kind of research can actually be talked about, tried, maybe even, um, it's unfortunate to say that, but this is not like anything we've ever seen, um, in that sense. It's a slow disaster. I mean, it's really playing out in a slow way. Yeah. Um. Rob Kane, thank you so much um, for the time that you spent uh, talking today on COVID calls. And I want to remind everyone to please tune in tomorrow at 5 p.m. when my guest will be Lori Peak from the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. Thanks, Rob. Really appreciate it. Sure, Scott. Take care. Thanks. Okay. See you all tomorrow.